You always was a black queen, mama I finally understand for a woman it ain't easy Trying to raise a man You always was committed A poor single mother on welfare Tell me how you did There's no way I can pay you back But the plan is to show you that I understand You all appreciate it Uhuru! Welcome to the People's War Radio Show. I'm Dr. Matsumela Odom. And I'm Mwambi Tongu. Uhuru means freedom in Swahili, and freedom is on our minds 24-7. Today on the People's War Radio Show, we lift up the struggle of African mothers and African families. On the afternoon of April 20, 2021, a jury in Minneapolis found Derek Chauvin, the cop who killed George Floyd, guilty on three counts, second-degree murder, third-degree murder, and second-degree manslaughter. Mainstream media talking heads have heralded the trial as a, quote, racial reckoning, unquote. Yet just before the announcement of the verdict, 700 miles southeast of Minneapolis in Columbus, Ohio, Nicholas Reardon, a cop and Air Force sniper, gunned down Micaiah Bryant, a 16-year-old African girl in foster care. According to the reports from her mother and sisters, Micaiah and her sister have been suffering abuse in foster care. Micaiah was defending herself and her younger sister. The fact that Micaiah had a knife is being used as justification for her murder by many in the media. Today, we uphold the African martyr, Micaiah, and place the onus on the state, specifically the parasitic and genocidal foster care system. The foster care system has historically turned African children into dollars. According to IBS World, the adoption of foster care industry is set to bring in $15.5 billion in revenue this year. African children make up about 14% of children in the U.S. Comparatively, African children comprise almost 25% of children in foster care around the U.S. In Ohio, where Micaiah Bryant was slain, African children are 15% of the population, but 30% of the foster care system. The problems with the foster care system are not isolated from the problem of mass incarceration, police killings of African people, and even the disproportionate COVID-19 rates in the African community. Our guests today share their stories and show how this struggle of African mothers and families dates back to colonial slavery and indoors today. With us today, we have Shante Mitchum, Adrienne Spellman, Anaya Butler, and Maria Odom. Our first guest is Shante Mitchum. Shante is a Black Studies professor and sociologist from Oceanside, California. Shante researches and teaches on African encounters with institutions of colonial power. She connects struggles against policing, mass incarceration, and education to the long Black freedom struggle. Adrienne Spellman is an African mother from Oakland, California. Adrienne is speaking justice, is seeking justice for her son, John Andre. On February 26, 2021, John Andre was killed in a transitional housing complex for foster youth funded by Alameda County Social Services. Our next guest is Anaya Butler. Anaya is from Tucson, Arizona. She is the mother of two beautiful children, Patience, her six-year-old daughter, who was stolen by the Arizona Department of Child Safety in 2020. 
She is fighting to get her back. Lastly, we have Maria Odom, my mom. She is from Long Beach, California, where she works in the Los Angeles Department of Public and Social Services. She has worked with a host of women in need, but she is much more than that. In 2016, she was honored with the CARE Award by the Daphne Belgrave Kersey Foundation for her service to the community. And here's one thing I will say about my mom. My mom has had the same phone number for almost 40 years. She has stayed in the same apartment for almost 35 years and in the same complex for 37 years. She has done this to make sure that she was always available to those who have always come to her for help, which we'll talk about today. Welcome to the show, everybody. So, Shantae Uhuru, on April 20th, the news of Derek Chauvin's conviction coincided with breaking news on the murder of Micaiah Bryant by Nicholas Reardon, an Ohio cop. On social media, you shared some thoughts on this tandem of events. Would you like to share those thoughts with us? What does this mean for justice for African people in the U.S.? I feel like this is a very emotional phenomenon that continues to happen within Af- for African people um, in the United States. Um, I had mixed emotions, honestly, with the you know Derek Chauvin uh, Chauvin trials, and you know it's, it was a process of re-traumatization. Is kind of how I describe it. Is you know having to go through all of those emotions and then kind of anticipating. I did not watch the live trials for many reasons, M- namely because of, again, that re-traumatization that African people are continuing to experience and in, in having this be such a public display of Black, you know, oppression and, and systems of oppression. And so I did watch the verdict being read. It was the only thing that I, that I watched live. And that, you know, it was a, it was a moment, <laughs> I would say it was a moment in time where it felt very, um, I can't even say relief, right? It wasn't even a, a moment of relief, but um, it was a moment where we could kind of take a breath and say, wow, okay, one, <laughs> you know, like one in this whole system. Um, but then kind of like you mentioned in, at the same time, uh, we then have to, you know, hear about the murder of Micaiah Bryant, a young black girl being, you know, portrayed as as a woman, you know, you see all of the constructions of her being talked about as a black woman when really she was a she was a black young black girl and that and that really matters, right? And so as for me raising a young black girl, um having lived life as as a young black girl at one point, it was another moment again of re-traumatization and having to rethink and think about what that means for me as a as an African mother, you know, raising raising a a, a girl, um, and so it was very it was very much one of those things that, you know, when can we escape? Right? Like when can we get away from the way that these systems are built? Um, and especially being a Black Studies professor, that that really influences you know my ability to. Uh, have these conversations in the classroom, you know, because my students wanted to, what they want to talk about these things that are happening um, as we are living. And it's important to talk about, right, in a Black Studies class and things like that. But there's that question of, okay, well, what do we do? 
you know, these systems are, are structured in the way that they are very intentionally. This is not, these things do not happen on accident. And so I think the, the emotional part for me was just like the moment where people are um, screaming that this is justice, justice has been served. You know, I see that all over social media and I found myself really angry at that. Um, that framing of it. It's like, is this, this is not justice, right? Like we have one police officer who is, you know, I don't even want to say being held accountable. You know, that's even that framing of it is I'm not satisfied with that either. Uh, And so a lot of it is like an emotional, you know, experience that we go through that's very unique to being um, African black in the United States. I appreciate that, Shante. Makai and her sister suffered abuse in foster care. Earlier this year, her little sister is on record calling the police, asking to be removed from the foster home she was in. It is also suggested that it was Makaya's little sister that called the police during the day of Makaya's murder. Shantae, what were they going through at that foster home that led up to this incident? And what happened that day that Makaya was killed? The media in particular is very quick to report without having all the facts. Um, and so the first thing that comes out is Makaya Bryant, you know, was going to stab somebody, right? Two people. And that's in, and you see those images. That was the first thing that I see as if, you know, that made this a quote, justifiable um, use of force as, you know, as the term goes. Um, but the more that the story kind of began, the layers began to build up was you find out that Makaya was in a very, very, very bad foster home in which adults, right? She, she was being treated as an adult, and that that's really important to say because black girls are oftentimes treated as adults, oftentimes assumed to be adults, both you know physically, mentally, emotionally, etc. And so she was dealing with a lot of things coming from the foster home in regards to to violence, not being protected, which is a very common um, thread that we see with black girls in in foster homes is the lack of protection her being in a situation where she's not protected and then call, you know, having to call resort to calling the police. And I, and I say like resort to calling the police because I know as a black girl, as a black person in the United States, that's not usually going to be our first phone call um, for many of us, because that's not, you know, we've seen over and over again, how this plays out. Um, where you call for help and yet you end up on the opposite side of that, just as Micaiah Bryant did. Um, And so, you know, the way that it's kind of being, um, the way that the facts are coming together is she called for help um, because she, you know, grown women people were, were involved in this altercation. And so she was in a situation in which she had to protect herself. Um, and, and yet, you know, protect herself, not only from the abuse in the moment, like this was a buildup. And I think that's a part of the story that was missing from the beginning is that there were, there were events and things that led up to, um, the events that occurred with Micaiah Bryan and why she felt the need to, to then, you know, arm herself and protect herself for, you know, whatever reason. 
there there was a build up to that that the media is not particularly interested in focusing on. Oh yeah, thanks for that. Thanks for that. Uh mama, you there? Thanks for coming on the show. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so mom, uh Miss Odom, from your experience, is this kind of abuse common in foster care? What sorts of uh issues do some black children face uh, in foster care? Okay, um I don't know if anyone really know my story, but uh my mother passed in 1968 and she left seven children. I was second to the older at the time. I was a month from turning 15. 17. And so, yeah. And, yeah. So I'm going to just briefly tell my story. And uh, she, my mother di- died because of domestic violence. And so that left my mother deceased and my father incarcerated. So her seven children had to go into the foster care system supposedly believe with some loving friends of hers her my mother was from uh, Panama and some of her f- friends decided that they were going to keep us and uh, our first foster home was in Los Angeles and I always tell the story about how I would watch uh, the lady that took us into foster care, we would have like Franks and beans over rice. And she had, mind you, there's seven of us and she had about five children of her own. So my, my, me and my siblings would get the, the beans with the juice and her children would get the Franks. Okay. And there was a difference. You could always feel a difference in that foster home that, um, you know, you could tell back then, this was in 1968, and it wasn't really for the love. It was for the check. I don't know how much they were being paid at that time, but it was not It was for the check. Now, our second foster home was better because um, the lady that took us was like, I looked up to her like auntie, but she had five children and we had seven. It got overwhelming for her, but we had love in that foster home, even though there was 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 um 12 of us in that home 13 of us we had a lot of love and like it should be but it was overwhelming and then uh, then um later that year cuz i was trying to get to be 18 cuz i knew at 18 that couldn't nobody separate my siblings and us cuz i could take over at that time before I turned 18, I went to a third foster home, which was another friend of my mom. But she ran a foster home, a transitional home. And we were there. And the day, my birthday present, on the, my birthday, she kicked me out because there was not going to be another check for me. So I was homeless at 18 on my birthday. It's always, to me, has been about the money for some. I'm not going to put all foster parents in the same category because some people do do it out of love. A love and I want to help, you know, others. But the majority of the homes you do see the children aren't being treated correctly. 
because I mean, like the first home, we were pulled from San Pedro to go to the Crenshaw district in Los Angeles and going into a new school Crenshaw. We didn't have the proper clothing. I can remember back then they given given vouchers to take us to Sears for clothes and I didn't see the clothes that we supposed to have gotten. And, you know, I lost a whole semester because my appearance wasn't right, you know. And I guess maybe because of so many of us that we couldn't, we didn't get that proper care. But it's always when you were in a foster home where that they have um, other family members, their family members came first before the foster children. So, I, you know, I don't know the whole um, Micaiah Bryant story, but uh, I would like to even, you know, get deeper into the story. And to understand, you know, this this child has a story other than she was a big child, a big, a big person that they thought was a woman. And this and 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 they had to bring her down because she was coming after somebody with a knife. There is more to the story. And I would love her legacy doesn't end like that. She she was just, you know, she. That's kind of sucks. That's all I say. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that, mama. Thank you. So Adrian and Anaya, uh, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Before we get into the intricacies of what happened to your son, John, can you please tell us about him? What type of young man was he? What were some of his hobbies? Um, John, well, some of his hobbies were um, eating for one <laughs> He enjoyed food. He loved good food. Um, he loved his grandmother's cooking, and he loved my cooking. He liked cars. He liked video games. Uh, like most teenage boys, he really enjoyed video games um, and could tell you pretty much anything about any car. He'll point out cars that you, by the time you look up, it's out of sight, and he could tell you, read off facts about the cars. Lots of personality, full, full on personality. You know, he get out there and whenever we moved, he would meet the neighbors or know the neighbors. And before I even knew them, like I would see him talking to people and I'd be like, get over here. Stop talking to people. He was really chatty, full of personality and full of life. Oh, yeah. Thanks for that, because and he really was a person who really stood up for his family, uh, the people around him and the people he loved, right? Yes, very much so. Very much so. Very much a a protective personality when it came to those that he loved. I'm really uh, thankful for uh, this time for us to be able to lift up uh, John and, uh, you know, your memories of him. Thank you. So, Anaya, what can you tell us about Patience? Well, Patience is a very special little girl. She's my first child. I mean, my first little girl. Um, she's six years old and she's full of life. She's an empath. An empath. I'm sorry. And um, she loves singing and dancing. Any anytime she can perform for you, she will. Um, she it does not have any type of stage fright or you know. Um, shyness about her. Um, She's just full of life and she's always making someone who's down feel back in their, you know, spirits again. Um, She just has a way with 
people um, when they're feeling down. So I think she's a very special little girl. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guests today are Shante Mitchum, Adrian Spellman, Anaya Butler, and Maria Odom. Thank you both for giving us that important background on John and Patience. Anaya, can you tell us about your case in the state kidnapping of Patience? On March 12, 2020, um, I received a knock at the door, and it was um, a DCS worker with about eight cops behind her knocking at the door, you know, trying to um, get someone to open the door. Finally got the door open because she was very loud and belligerent on my window. And she said that she just wanted to see if Patience was okay because she has been getting um, phone calls that Patience was being unsupervised. Previously, before that happened, um, my daughter's birthday is February 10th. And after her birthday, it seems that as though we were getting a lot of calls um, from the police just randomly coming up to my door and doing a wellness check on my daughter. And I just found out later that it was um, my apartment manager who had orchestrated this whole ordeal. He's an ex-cop who is a worker. He, um, I guess he worked in the adult probation for about 30 years, um, James Meyer. Um, he ended up being the manager over my complex for Section 8. To make a long story short, there was a mutual person that we knew who identified himself with um, with me as his street sister, and he wanted him off the property. So since he identified himself with me, he ended up, my manager wanted me to sign a contract to remove this guy from the property. But I don't, I didn't, you know, agree with that. I didn't know what was going on, and I'm not going to sign another contract that had nothing to do with me. So he revoked my, my lease. And he felt that if you get rid of the family, you get rid of the problem. So he orchestrated the neighbors to call the police and keep calling. And that's one way that, you know, you can get the family out or, you know, um, evicted from from the housing. But what happened was, I guess it wasn't working out for him. Um, he ended up doing something, you know, against his, his job and he got fired. Um, little did I know that he went and called DCS on my daughter um, and arranged a special, I guess, visit that day. Because when she came knocking on my door, she already had an ex parte hearing um, removal. It wasn't a warrant. It was just a removal note um, stating that she had the right to take my daughter. And she had backup, like eight cops to, I guess, to be there to... Um, intimidate me or intimidate my family, you know, to to let them in and do whatever they needed to do. She looked around. She she didn't even stay for more than like less than 10 minutes. Um, She seen some incense ash that I had on my china cabinet because I light incense and I'm very spiritual. So I light incense to clear clear the air. And she said that it was paraphernalia. No one's seen this paraphernalia. The police, she has eight cops around her. And they're in my house and none of them see the paraphernalia. None of them takes um, a picture or, you know, test this paraphernalia that they claim that she claimed to see or nothing. 
So she said, oh, take, let's take patience and it's time to go. So she takes patience and the next day she does a hair follicle test. She cuts my daughter's hair without my permission and without me knowing this. Now, remind you, I'm, we have not even went to court yet. We have not even, you know, um, just did any type of due process where we explain, uh, you know, go to court to explain our side or to tell our side. We didn't even get that due process. What happened was the next day, my daughter got her hair cut. She was in foster care. She didn't go to any hospital or anything. They just took her to the office, to the welcome center, and then to her foster home. Like they already had this pre-play, like pre-planned. And we had a TDM meeting. And I guess she was running out of time to, um, you know, her her story straight or her files up to date. And she needed to sign, she needed to put in a petition for patients to be a, um, a ward of the court. Now that happened on, she got taken on, on Wednesday and, she, no, I'm sorry, she got taken on Thursday and we had the TDM on Friday. Now that weekend, you don't get to, you know, the weekend doesn't count. So they're supposed to return your child within like 12 hours and then like up to 24 hours. But on the weekend, it doesn't count. She already put the petition in on Friday. That Friday that we had the TDM, she already put a dependency petition in that Friday. And they had court on the 17th that we were not even aware about. Our first court date was April 21st, and they had court March 17th or 18th, and we didn't ne- we never went because we never knew about it. So she ended up being ward of the court. My family tried to step in. They, the social worker said they didn't qualify. The social worker, me and her do not get along. Her name is Donna Stewart. She's very um, confrontational when it comes to authority. Um, you know, I am definitely a mother that protects and I ask questions and she doesn't like that. So she messes with my visitation. She allows her dad to go see um, patients, but she has restricted me on so many, so many times to see my daughter. And, you know, it interfered with a lot of things like, you know, I had to definitely keep my composure, you know, it, I had to, you know, um, hold myself to a a degree where, you know, it's very hard to, to to do something like that when your daughter or your kid or your child, something, someone that you carried around in your in your belly for nine months and, you know, almost died having her and things of that nature. Um, you know, it's kind of hard to not go out there and tell somebody, you know, who are they to speak on how I parent my my child and you know, to sum it all up, there was no eyewitness. There was no evidence. It was all hearsay. And they allowed us to get on the stage or on the, you know, the panel and and try to incriminate ourselves. So what I did was I had to get smart, Um, you know, put my emotions aside and and put my thinking cap on and, and figure out what's going on. And then come to find out that the attorneys that they appointed us with, they were no good to us. Um, the first thing my attorney said was, you know, um, why don't you just sign the paper, sign the paperwork, sign the paperwork and just do what they're asking you to do. Um, and, you know, and this will all go away. 
And not once did I ever believe that because, you know, they make it hard. First, they take, they take my child, they took our income, and then they take our home. And now we are homeless, fighting, a, trying to find a way to survive and, and you know, um, find a new home to stay in. Um, you know, we were both in school. Um, I was doing hair as well as, um, you know, my entrepreneur's job, what have you. We had our daughter in gymnastics. This investigator had a ex parte. She had the ex parte um, signed off by a Maricopa County judge when I reside in Pima County. And she got it done prematurely. So she, my daughter was taken on the 12th and she got this ex parte hearing on March 4th. And she got the initial call February 17th or yeah, February 17th. And she says she didn't come out until February 20th. Now in their rules and policies, it states that they need to make three, the most three attempts to try to get in contact with the mom and the dad. In her report, it, she definitely, um, you know, um, is hypocritical on what she says. Um, she said that she tried everything to uh, any all attempts to try to get in contact with us when I only met, met the lady one time um, and she's already having an ex parte, um, you know, removal um, request to take my child. And for what reason? When you're dealing with juvenile um, juveniles, what is it, juvenile tribunal court, you they only go off of presumption, assumption, hearsay and. Uh, something like past tense or something like that, where they dig up your past and try to use that against you. But right now they don't have anything. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, just for clarity, DCS is Department of Child Safety. And what what is a, a TDM meeting? Uh, that's a team de- um, team decision making meeting. Um, okay. You only get those when your daughter, when your kid is going to be transferred out. Or, or adopted out or um, becoming part of the, the system. Okay, thank you. Thank you for the clarity. Adrian, can you tell us about your case and what happened to John? Um, okay, my case goes a little further back. We're originally from the Bay Area and we were living in Southern California at the time. Um, and I actually had a, um, there was an incident at my home when I wasn't there um, between my son and my youngest child's father, a lot of argument and stuff like that going on, and police were called. And my landlord um, issued me a 60-day notice. Um, so we were homeless for a while, um, struggling to get a place um, to secure housing. Um, my son has mental health and behavioral issues um, and actually has, had the, at the time, had the diagnosis of ADHD and oppositional defiance disorder. So we wind up moving back home, back to the Bay Area. In October of 2017, he had actually gotten the additional diagnosis of DMDD, which is Disruptive Mood Dysregulation Disorder. DMDD is actually very similar to bipolar disorder. So there were a lot of problems. Um, And I just couldn't, I I couldn't get help or support. And I couldn't really focus on getting back on my feet um, because I was up at the school nearly every day or almost every day and just a lot going on. And so I was calling out for help. He was actually 5150 right before Christmas of 2018. So 
things kept, you know, just kept falling apart. And I just got to a point to where I couldn't handle it anymore because I couldn't focus on getting back on, on my feet. I couldn't focus on trying to, I'm, I'm a, a, a single mother and an entrepreneur. So I couldn't focus on rebuilding my business. Um, I couldn't focus on finding us a place to stay because of everything going on with my son. And in the midst of my struggles, my mental health um, spiraling itself. The day of him being 5150, there was a lot that was supposed to be going on that day and everything was canceled. I was also doing a, a market. I was doing a market, um, you know, trying to holiday season, doing a market. Um, it was actually uh, the... Uh, what's a 5150? 5150 is where they do a psychiatric code, um, involuntary psych- psychiatric. The police will hold you until the ambulance gets there and then they actually strap you to the to a gurney. Willow Rock that night said that, oh, he was fine. Um, and the very next day released him. And I refused to come get him that day because I said, you need to do an actual evaluation, actual 72 hour hold um, and do a, a proper evaluation. Since I refused to come get him that night, um, social services was contacted then. However, the police brought him to me, I was actually staying with my best friend. My, the police brought him home to my best friend's house um, where I was staying and essentially said that I had no choice but to take him. Um, that unless I essentially, uh, I guess, go to jail for neglect if I refuse to take him. In Alameda County, if you are sleeping on a friend's couch or floor, you don't really qualify as homeless. So when you call 211, they 211, they will not assist you. You have to either be sleeping outside or sleeping in your car or sleeping in a hotel. My son's behavioral issues continued early March. We had a um, IEP at school. My son had a had an IEP. Um, and he was a excuse me, a junior. Um, IEP at school. During the IEP meeting, he got upset and had an outburst and walked out. Um, and there was an argument and some issues between he and I there. And I, at that point, I was just like, I can't do this anymore. I can't. I had to um, surrender my rights because my mental health was declining and I couldn't do it anymore. Um, I have two other children also, um, one two years older than him and one eight and a half years younger than him. So I needed to actually be around to parent them also. So my son went through social services. I told them from day one, all of his diagnoses, and I told them that they needed to put him, place him into the highest level of care. Okay. So in January, he moved into a group home um, in Oakland two weeks prior. So February 12th, um, my son wasn't home. A kid that, excuse me, a 20, 20 year old guy that, hung around um, the group home, frequently visited, Was had a friend. One of my son's roommates was friends with this guy, um, came over, and he actually, my son wasn't home. He beat up one of his other roommates um, and took his allowance and then kicked in my son's room bedroom door and stole his belongings. Two weeks later, on February 26th, the guy came back. Um, my son wasn't home yet. He was on his way home. He had gotten off work early and, um, his dad was bringing him home and this guy came back and kicked in his room door again, 
his roommates called him and told him um, that the guy, Jay, Jay Sauce, I guess that's the name he went by, was there and he's kicked in his door again. My son, as his father came around the corner, my son was very upset. He um, jumped out the car as soon as his father hit the corner. Um, when he ran back there, um, my son ran back to the back of the apartments and the guy came from around the bushes. I don't know if he was hiding behind the bushes waiting for my son or if he was just coming out the apartment and was coming from around the bushes. But um, I'm assuming my son saw the gun and turned to run away because Jason shot my son in the back. Um, One bullet in the back um, ended my son's life. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that with us. Shantae, none of this is new. In fact, the attack on African families was central to the colonial enslavement of African people. Can you explain colonial enslavement's attack on African women, children, and families, and how you think it relates to our contemporary struggles? Colonial slavery, chattel slavery, was very intentional in the way that it took the ability, did not allow Black women in particular um, to be considered mothers. And I'll, I'll kind of explain a little more what that means. You know, there was a, there's a term called natal alienation, right? So it's the, it's when, you know, African people were stolen from their land and brought over here, they were stripped of their language, their, you know, they separated women, men, and children intentionally, um, and I think that was really kind of this first um, demonstration by by colonizers that you are no longer a family. This this extension of family rights is not afforded to you as an African person. It was the separation, um, African women, African men, African children, um, and then that 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 legacy really kind of continued through, um, you know, not being. Uh, black women, you know, being raped by by colonizers and not being allowed to name their children, for instance, um, not being allowed to raise their children, um, oftentimes, and and if they were right allowed to quote raise, and I say quote like raise their children, it was at the will and the powers of you know the 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 people who who colonized their, their livelihood, their, their every existence. Um, and so, you know, just the very, it was, all of it was very intentional in stripping away and stripping down the ability for African people to form um, familial relationships in the way that um, white families, for instance, at that time were allowed to, um, and so, you know, when when a black woman would have a child, um, whether that be through through rape or by choice, you know, there were African men and women um, during, you know, during the time of slavery who who did have relationships. They had marriages. They had um, children within within themselves by choice. So it was not all the products of rape. And I think that's really important to say. Um, but their children would then become you know, another, another uh, reminder, another reminder to them that, um, you know, you're now I own your child too. 
right? Like now your child is is going to be um, given my last name and given, you know, their entire existence is going to be at my will. Um, I can sell them if I want to. Um, I can send them to a different plantation if I want to. Um, and, and all of that was really just setting up this um, foundation for, you know, Black families' ability to be a family, you know, not being, I just imagine myself, like, especially as a mother now, that changes everything um, that I feel and know about, you know, um, African mothers during slavery is I can't imagine not being allowed to name my child or to pass my name or my husband's name uh, down to my child, because that, again, is another one of those signifiers of we are family and that that was not awarded, that that ability to do so was not extended to African women. Um, and and it definitely um, relates to to contemporary struggles today. Foster care system receives over $15 billion in revenue a year farming out African children. Alameda County, where your son was killed in foster care, is in the neighboring county of Contra Costa, where in 1996, a white foster care operator, Yvonne Eldridge, was convicted of child abuse after an African baby died in her care. Eldridge had collected premium payments for care of sick, of sick children who she had made ill by injecting them with poison and convincing doctors to carry out unnecessary surgeries. The Ahura movement was involved in a campaign to prevent Eldridge from being granted contracts to keep any more children. Anaya and Adrian, can you explain to us how, how do these counties and foster care operators profit from our children? Um, well, I know for my child, my child has behavioral and mental health issues. Um, they're paid very high sums. Um, from my understanding, somewhere between ten dollars and $14,000 a month per ch- child. Um, the program that my son was in, and it's public record, we look it up, they um, pulled in over $900,000 in 2020. So almost a million dollars in one year off of our children. Um, the complex that my son was in, it's owned by a guy um, who, from my understanding, um, illegally evicted regular families so that he can essentially, t- essentially turn it into a bunch of mini group homes. There's about three to four kids per unit. At the time of my son's murder, there were three units with about three to four children there. 18-year-olds, so they're transitional age youth, but 18, they're still children. They were still um, wards of Alameda County. Uh, there's no supervision being provided. Um, they're not provide, There's no therapy being provided. There's no programs being provided. They're supposed to essentially assist them so that when they exit the program, I believe it's between 21 and 24 when they exit the program, they are ready for life on their own. And they're, they weren't doing any of that. Um, the kids didn't even have plates in, in the apartment. Uh, they just collect a check um, and they don't provide any supervision. And the kids are just essentially running free. In that complex, there are two units that have regular, normal, everyday folks in them. And the reason why they're still there is because they had enough sense to actually go to the rent board and find out if 
the evictions or the termination, lease terminations or whatever that they were giving out were legal. And they found out that they were not legal. And so they were able to stay. They just bring kids in, collect a check. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh. problems. They kick them out and the kids essentially go from group home to group home or until they're kicked out of the program. Thank you. Um, Anaya? To my understanding, um, there's a thing that's called the Social Security Act where they focus more so on the elderly, the dis- um, children that are, um, you know, disabled and children, period. And then also the, I guess, the medical field. Those are the four main topics that's provided in the Social Security Act. And that's where the, the government gets um, all of their funding. So um, they also focus on like the social, the social workers. Um, if they do not meet a certain quota um, uh, or how many children they get out of the system, I mean, out of their homes, how many children they can pull out of um, their homes, then they're liable to get fired. You know, like our children are walking money bags. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guests today are Shante Mitchum, Adrian Spellman, Anaya Butler, and Maria Odom. Adrian, how can people support you in your campaign for justice for John? Honestly, that's right now, that's something, a, a question that I actually have myself. Um, I know there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Um, there's a lot of work that needs to be done with Alameda County Social Services and with accountability and with these foster homes and group homes and having some sort of structure on what needs to be provided for, these, for our children. There's no excuse in the world for you to be bringing in ten dollars to $14,000 off the backs of children, off the back of a single child, per child, excuse me, ten dollars to $14,000 per child and not providing every service possible. Um, I dealt with social workers saying, oh, he's not that bad. Or I've also dealt with, um, well, I have a social worker saying, one social worker saying he's not that bad. I had another social worker, his last social worker that he had. Um, the day my son was murdered, she came out there. Um, and she, when she hugged, they hugged me and she said, don't blame yourself. You did everything possible. She said, you did more than I would have done. And for me, that's a problem. There is no limit when it goes to helping our children and trying to do what's in their best interest and trying to get them on the right track. It's not, for me, it's about just getting our children 18. I didn't want to just get my son to 18. I wanted to get him set for life so that one day in life, he'd be secure and be able to carry on life without me because the plan is for us to go before our children. Anaya, how can people support your campaign? Do you have any actions coming up? Okay, so how people can support my campaign is, you know, being more aware of what's going on in the foster care system. I, be- I believe that, you know, if we start a petition on how the foster care system is ran, and, you know, changing, um, you know, the pretty much just changing the procedure policies and procedures, um, you know, to more so 
be for the family and not for the social workers. I would definitely, I'm going to be opening up um, um, a program, not even a program, but like a, a small gathering with mothers. Um, anybody's actually welcome, but it will be with Black mothers. Um, and it's called Don't Lose Patience. And, um, you know, it's, it'll be held maybe twice a week, um, just so um, Black mothers who are, you know, experiencing the same thing that we're experiencing and they need a little help um, on which way to go and how to um, go about it. I believe that, you know, these these meetings um, will definitely help Black mothers and also each other, you know, to get to the next state. You know, I am willing and able to help anybody else that needs, you know, um, the help because I don't want to see anybody go through this. Oh, Shante, Sunday is Mother's Day. So we'd like to raise up uh, African mothers, all of you African mothers on the panel today. Point nine of the African People's Socialist Party working platform raises up black women. It reads, we want an end to the political and social oppression and economic exploitation of African women. We believe in the absolute, unequivocal, political, social, and economic equality of African women and men. We believe that a fundamental test of the progressive or revolutionary character of any organization party, movement, or society is its commitment confirmed in practice to the destruction of the special oppression of women and the elevation of women to the rightful place as equal partners and leaders. In the forward motion of the development of human society and as leaders, makers, and shapers of human history. So I'll ask you this, what does freedom look like to African mothers? What does African community self-determination look like when it comes to mothering and parenting? I think freedom um, for African women would really be, you know, the ability to, to define motherhood in a way that fits our community and, and not constantly being, you know, compared to and, and put and dichotomized against um, other communities that, you know, have have really tried to force us into this mold of motherhood and mothering um, that is not something that fits our culture and our community. And so, you know, when you say, what does African community self-determination look like? Um, I think that's also a very similar, you know, answer that I would have is it's just really um, being able to, you know, be unapologetic and, define our own selves, you know, for ourselves, as Audre Lorde says, um, and, and not being in spaces in which we are, we are constantly bombarded and manipulated by systems and structures that were not built for our people. Uhuru, mama, let me ask you that same question. What does freedom look like to you? Freedom. <laughs> I was sitting here trying to think, what, how will I define freedom? Freedom would be able, to me, would be if a parent is able to, like a, a mother, a mother would be allowed to nurture and raise her children without being 
looked at as being lazy, you know, or whatever. So freedom would be the to be able to have the right to do what you're able to do, you know. Some some mothers are able to go ahead and work and still raise their children. But back a lot of them, you know, we used to have like um a village that would help each other, you know. If you're at work, your child will never come home without being someone being there, an adult family member basically to be there to step in for that mother, that single mother, you know. Me, myself, I was a nurturer. I didn't know how to balance the two. So I was actually the one that everyone would send their children because they they were working so they knew that their children would be safe if they came to me, to my house. So just having the freedom to be able to live your life, parent as you know what is best without being with all these labels being put on you. Yeah, yeah, mama. Thanks for that. Thanks for that. Right. Uh, freedom uh, is for us to, uh, you know, uh, control, profit over our own uh, life uh, and labor. And we know under these conditions that we have to live, uh, you know, we don't have that. So um, thanks, mama. Now, as noted, we are celebrating uh, Mother's Day. So, hey, Mwambi, uh, is your mom there? Uh, if so, uh, let's invite her into the conversation. Uhuru, so as you do that, uh, tell us about your mom. Who is she? Uhuru, say say hi, mom. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Uhuru. Well, my mom's name is Thomasine Oki. Um, she was born in Washington State, raised in Colorado Springs with her four sisters and brother. And she raised myself and my two brothers in San Diego, California. She worked in the healthcare industry for over 20 years and um, really has always been a rock, you know, not only for our family, but for a lot of people around in the community and has done a lot of uh, work around the community and, you know, uh, things like social services and um, programs to help, you know, like the homeless communities and different things like that. But, um, but yep, that's my mama. I remember when Makai Bryant was slain. My mom and I had a conversation, and my mom said, I pray a phrase, where was the community? All of you mothers on the panel today really represent the self-determination of African mothers and families, and that really is the way forward. Thomasine, you have taken family members out of foster care by taking them into your home and parenting them. What can you tell us about that? Well, what I want to say is that um, they actually weren't in... Thank God they didn't get into the foster care system. But before they were in the foster care system, someone was saying earlier about community, and that's what our family is about. So sometimes, you know, in the family, we hit on hard times. So what we have to do is we have to step up for one another. So there have been different times where um, I've helped family members out, my sister's. Uh, to take in their kids. I want to go back because you're talking about the foster care system. And I remember a time with my um, my mom and our utilities were getting ready to be shut off. And my mom was a single mom with six kids. And she was going to put us into the foster care. You know, sometimes when you're from a poor, a poor family and you don't have much to eat or you feel like yourself, 
you're not being taken care of, you might welcome that. What? what? I go be in a place with shelter and uh, food every day. But uh, she decided not to do that. Our utilities did get shut off and she just made it fun. You know, we had to pile on extra blankets. We were from Colorado Springs. So we went through a winter and a spring without any utilities. But when I look back on on that, I think that was one of the best decisions that she had ever made was to keep us together. You know, that we knew we had to persevere through those hard times and we did not get put into the foster care system. So it's um, very sad to see what happened with Micaiah Butler, that in the end, she ended up dying, being in the foster care system. So I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done out there. This has been the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU Black Power Radio at 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. WBPU is a project of the African People's Education and Defense Fund, the baddest nonprofit on the planet, whose mission is to defend the human and civil rights of the African community and address the grave disparities faced by African people in education, healthcare, and economic development. For more information on the African People's Education and Defense Fund, visit apedf.org. Episodes of the People's War Radio Show are available on the Black Power Talks podcast. For updates and resources to fight the coronavirus or to volunteer with Project Black Onk, visit developmentforafrica.org. Thank you for listening. Colonial virus, mass incarceration, that's colonial virus.